Don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now you can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is a very, very light gilet, which apparently, I know I've got the jacket version, and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version. So it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40K in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now. Good morning, good afternoon. It rather depends on when you're listening to this. But welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, James Spender. And with me today is Mr. William Strickson. How are you doing, Will, with your token rugby England shirt behind you? I just about can identify a rugby shirt. It's not It's not my forte. No, good evening, James. Yeah, it's not your forte, but it's an England shirt. And, you know, I enjoyed there not being a rugby game last weekend because it meant there was a lot less stressful which is nice fair enough is that it's signed by somebody who's it signed by it is signed by uh, england international maro toji do you know how do you know he signed it how do you know when something is genuine because you get a little thing saying this is genuine but how do you know that's genuine it was from a charity auction from something that he's associated with okay dare i ask how much you paid for it i didn't pay for it so you did hang on so how so how has the charity benefited from the fact you now have this my partner my partner bought it because she is a a big rugby fan a, a Saracens and England fan okay who are which is Mario Toji's teams I see and how much did she pay for it don't know present yeah th- it was it was uh, beyond my control so I just was like wow fair play fair play if you ever receive quite an expensive present at what point do you it wasn't even a present it's just ended up in the room that I'm in now Okay, okay. Well, I mean, I still want to ask my question, so don't ride roughshod yeah, over it. If you ever ex- yeah. receive quite an expensive present, how long does it take you before you look it up on the internet to see how expensive it really is? Um, I don't think I've been in that position, so I'm going to turn that back on you. How long? I bet you're about as soon as you get into a different room. No, because I really try and pull back on it. But I'd say within a fortnight, I know how much something costs. <laughs> fortnight? <laughs> Well, I guess considering your age, that's probably when you get to like the internet next, right? You're more of an analog bloke. <laughs> I am more of an analog. Yeah, I tend to. I like to write to the company with with <laughs> a, an actual film, thirty five millimeter film exposure of me wearing said garment or the the actual thing, and say, "Can you identify this and please correspond with me and tell me how much it costs?" I want the full RRP, but also the sale price during the period in which I believe it was bought. Yeah. <laughs> So there you go. We should move on because obviously this is a cycling podcast about people that cycle um, as opposed to people that own things or rugby. Um, Our guest today is a gentleman, an American gentleman by the name of Daniel Troyer. Daniel is a documentary filmmaker and over the last, I think, five or six years, he somehow managed to cycle across the United States no less than twice. But in his, uh, well, Three times. The first two was just him just doing it for a bit of fun. The third one he's made a film about. And that's because he set off kind of in the pursuit of kindness, trying to see if people would help him, see what the state of the nation is 
in a world that is quite divided. As we know, Will, America is, is quite a divided country politically. Yeah, the divided states. The divided states, exactly. That w- They will be changing. <laughs> They'll have to change their name uh, regardless of what happens in November. Um, so he set off on his bike with no money, no food, just some camping equipment, um, change of clothes, and a cardboard sign saying, basically, I'm riding across America. Please help me if you can. And the film is... A series of interactions that he um, had with with yeah with with strangers, and as you might imagine, most of those interactions were really rather lovely. But there are also some twists. I do absolutely advise anyone advise. That's a strange word. I encourage anyone to go and watch the film, which is called "We Are All in This Together." It should probably be a don't try this at home warning on that as well, because I feel like it was a rather dangerous undertaking. Given you know, it is quite dangerous. I know doing that on your own. Not just because you're meeting people randomly in crazy places you've never been to and you're very far from where you live, but also because there's loads of bits of America that are just desolate. It's just you, mm. you a road, and the carcass of all the animals that also died on that road. Yeah, great thought. Great thought. So on, on that note, we should probably introduce Daniel to the show. So welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Daniel Troyer. Where are you calling in from, caller? Whereabouts are you in the States? <laughs> I'm in Monterey, California. Ah, okay, right. So is that is that where you set off from? Did you basically set off from your home? Yeah, exactly. I left my front door and, and set off that way. Oh, nice. So when, you know, for a man that's done some incredibly high mileage, which uh, we'll come to in a second, when was the last time you rode your bike? Even if it was like the most banal trip and where were you going? What did you achieve? Who did you see? Um, this past summer, I, um, I rode across Europe. I flew into Milan, Italy, and I wandered around uh, Italy for, for three weeks. And the funny thing with this is I, I had a plan, planned route. And then the day that I left Milan, I was like, you know what? I just kind of want to wander a little bit. And so I just started talking to local Italians. And then, um, yeah, they would kind of tell, tell me, oh, you know, this is a good route down this way. So I said, okay, let's, let's go this direction today. And then uh, eventually I crossed into Switzerland. And then um, I crossed the Swiss Alps, you know, and then um, did that for three weeks or so. And I just love cycling in the Swiss Alps. You know, it takes you super high into the, yeah. the mountains and the, the riding is so beautiful out there. And the mountain passes, I mean, just the idea of riding up a mountain pass for a couple hours and then get to the top, it's just such a wonderful feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Did you go up um, the uh, the James Bond Strauss, the Furka Pass, the famous one? Yeah, yeah. There's this route um, that's just insanely beautiful. You have the Oberalp Pass, and then you have the Fortica Pass, and then you have the Grimsel Pass, and then there's one more, the Grosje Siding Pass, which takes you into Grindelwald. And like that, that those four mountain passes are like pretty much back to back. It's unbelievable riding. Yeah, yeah, and they're all like well in excess of two thousand meters, aren't they? Yeah, yep, yeah. absolutely. And, and just the the Fortica is probably my favorite, just because of the views. The entire time you're getting crazy views. Where certain other mountain passes, you, you may not get the best view until you get to the top. But the Fortica, yeah, the James Bond one is just so epic. And then it it drops you into this valley, and then immediately after, like immediately after, you go straight back up the Grimsel Pass. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I've always loved, for, for by the way, for anyone that doesn't know what we're talking about when we're referencing James Bond, number one, where have you been? Number two, you probably shouldn't know because it's obviously he's a misogynist dinosaur from a bygone era, and that is a movie franchise we should all forget. But you've got Bond on a mountain pass driving neck and neck with um, a beautiful blonde in a car, 
And he's got these little things that come out of his Aston Martin wheel hubcaps that slash both of her tires. And there's a brilliant line where he pulls over and goes, goodness me, a double blowout. <laughs> and you think, <laughs> anyway, so that's this very famous road in Switzerland. But obviously, we're not here to talk about just your escapades um, riding around Europe. Specifically, it's the film that you've just released. So it came out in January 2024 this year, and it's on various streaming services, Apple, Amazon Prime. I think you can probably watch it through Vimeo as well, potentially. Uh, Google Play also. Oh, uh, Google Play, cool. And it's called We Are All In This Together. And it's about you riding across America, which is very hard and very far. Then you also turn around and come back, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> but the maddest thing is, tell me what the maddest thing is, Daniel. You did it with, or without rather. Yeah, I did it without bringing any food or money. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, a big question is, is why? Yeah. So um, the last couple of years, with all the political division in the country, like, Honestly, I was feeling anger just at how divided it's, the people seem in the country. And um, so at the same time, somebody just happened to give me a book called The Kindness of Strangers. And it was about this guy who hitchhiked across America in the mid-90s and with no food or money. And he, and he wrote about his experiences. And after reading that book, you know, I felt super inspired. And I thought, man, I would love to do something similar, but do it on a bike. And the reason was I wanted to kind of channel that anger and try to create something positive out of it because the anger definitely wasn't helping me. It was just sitting in my stomach, you know? And so I came up with the idea of, of doing it on my bike. And then I thought, well, I want to film it somehow, but how could I film it? Because I don't want to bring a crew with me because then it wouldn't be real, you know? So what I did was I used some camera glasses, right? And so I decided to, to leave on my bike with no food or money. And then I had a sign that said, biking across country, ran out of food, anything helps. And then I would stand in front of grocery stores with my camera glasses on, you know, and if, if I was fortunate to receive some help, I would, I would ask the person, hey, do you, do you have a story about when somebody helped you and you really needed it? And so I started collecting stories through my camera glasses. And uh, yeah, that was kind of the premise of the movie is to, to show, the goal was to show maybe, you know, people coming together instead of, you know, people being separated. Yeah, because it, so it starts off with, you've got a montage of clips, um, one of which is really quite harrowing of a soldier, I think, getting mobbed by a crowd and beaten. And then you've got Colin Kaepernick, um, the NFL star, taking a knee. That, of course, you know, being a big touch paper lit for the Black Lives Matter movement in the States. Lots of this kind of unrest, which is familiar to us, I think, in the UK, but through a very specific lens, through our media lens. What was that looking like to you? Could you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, it was, um, I've never experienced anything like this as far as what, what the, the country felt like and still feels like right now. It seems like we're not talking to each other and it's so incredibly polarized that as soon as somebody hears that you vote for one particular party, it's like we're, we're just shut them out. Where in the past, it, you know, 10 years ago, it seemed like, okay, like we're still going to talk though. We'll talk about our differences, et cetera. But I think that with, with, with social media specifically, it's, it's, it creates this anonymity. And so people say whatever they want. And before that, you know, I used to be a bartender, right? And 10, 12 years ago, people would have a drink with each other and then they would talk politics in person and they would, they would disagree with each other, but it'd be respectful because they were in person. And I felt like they were giving each other a chance to speak and to listen. But now because we're not speaking in person nearly as much, I think it's creating tons of division. 
Yeah. Did you find? Well, okay, I'll I'll start that again. I think because it's quite a big question. But it, initially, you strike out from your front door in Monterey. In um, do you say Mon, Mon, Monterey or Monterey? Yeah, Monterey. Monterey in California. And who's who's the first person you meet? And I don't necessarily mean meet as in have a chat to, but kind of have an interaction with, which could just be locking eyes or you know what was that first kind of interaction on the road like. You know what's unbelievable, James, is I stopped in Santa Cruz. Um, it was a couple-hour ride from where I live, and the and I stood in front of the grocery store, and the very first person I met, his name was Rodney, right? And I asked him, like, we you know, what made you want to help me, et cetera? And then he told me this quote. He says, I don't give because I have a lot. I give because I know what it's like to have absolutely nothing, right? And he was the very first person I met, and he foreshadowed like the rest of the trip for me, because I started to realize that when I would go into more impoverished neighborhoods, like those were the people who were the most willing to give. And it was pretty unbelievable to the very first person I met basically foreshadowed the whole experience for me. Yeah. Yeah. Did you kind of, did you plan a route that was deliberately as kind of not, not short as possible, but you know, you're, you're riding with a, a laden bike, even though obviously you're traveling without money and without food. You've got a tent with you, some very basic cooking gear, obviously spares, bit of clothing and whatnot. So you're not looking to do some crazy, you know, Swiss mountain style route all the way. But did you also try and think like, I want to go to these places. I want to go to Santa Cruz and meet someone there, but I also want to go through, I don't know, the sort of like the hills, the go past the expensive houses, meet, you know, did you try and work it out? So you went to different social groups, not just places. Yeah, I did. And I, I but, but I learned early on that I had, there's a, there's a grocery store called Trader Joe's oh, yeah, yeah. in the United States, you know, and um, like it's. I'd say a certain population of people more wealthy. And I learned early on that if I stand in front of those stores, it felt like cheating because I was receiving a lot of help, you know? And, and again, I acknowledged like my, my, my sign was interesting. So I was attracting more attention than I think normally the normal people would with just a sign that said hungry. And that's the unfortunate truth. But because my bike, my, my sign said bike and across country, I, there was a lot of curiosity. And so after, you know, standing in front of Trader Joe's a couple of times, I decided not to do that anymore because the, the other reason was because I found that people who had more money didn't have as interesting stories, if that makes sense, because yeah. they hadn't faced as many hardships in their life. So I definitely um, tried to switch it up that way. Yeah. Just as a complete aside, I've been to a couple of Trader Joe's traveling around for this job, and I've literally just never seen such perfectly presented fruit and vegetables in my entire <laughs> like. You know, I believe it's called like flashing, which is what people do in supermarkets. And they go around, they turn all the like baked bean tins so the labels all face the same way. And it's like yep. they do that to the apples and then they're like misted and they're waxed. And it's just this like next level thing. Anyway, that thought just sprung into my mind. Very different from lots of the kind of corner shops, I'm sure, <laughs> around yeah, other parts of the state. For sure. That's well said, though. Yeah, but that's that's interesting. Um, that's yeah. That, I mean, it comes across time and again in the film, and you talk about it, which is the people who who have suffered. Not you know, suffered is maybe the wrong word, but it is obviously suffering for so many people. But who have just been in situations where they are without are much much more generous to you because they understand there's a kinship, there's a connection, and without jumping around too much in the film and also I don't want to give too much away because I really encourage anyone to go and watch it it is 
an hour and ten, which also I love because so many things are really too long these days and I've got a little kid, so there's not enough time to watch stuff at the moment. Um, but it could have been longer, let me say. But really encourage people to watch it. But there's a guy that you meet called Gary and he seems to come yeah. along at the most important time in your journey. Can you describe where you were in in terms of your route, just like the logistics of it, and where you were in your head at the point you met Gary? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought up Gary. So um, this was six months in, into the trip. And so originally I just planned to ride in New York City, but then I got to New York City and I wanted to keep going. So I spent another three and a half months on the road. And yeah, at this point, um, my body was just breaking down. I mean, there was three nights that I had in Montana in the Rockies a couple weeks earlier, and uh, it was extremely cold. And that like sucked the energy out of me and the strength. And so the last six weeks or so on the way home was a real struggle. And um, so I pulled over the side of the road and I was feeling not just physically beat up, but mentally because the lifestyle I was living was, was super stressful and strenuous. I mean, trying to find a safe place to sleep, trying to find a place to bathe, trying to get enough food and money. Um, that was all wearing on me. And so I was feeling so beat up and sitting on the side of the, of the, on the sidewalk and I didn't have my sign out or anything. And people were just walking past me. And uh, this guy stops and he says, hey, man, are you okay? I said, yeah, I mean, I'm okay. I'm just, just trying to rest a little bit, rest my body. And he says, hold on a second, man. I'll be right back. And he runs across the street to a grocery store. And then he comes back and he has a bag of groceries for me, right? And what he did was um, he was actually unhoused. He, he was uh, living on the streets and he bought me a bag of groceries with his food stamps, right? And and. The interesting thing was I didn't even need the groceries at the time. Um, I had food, but the fact that he saw that I was struggling and made me feel seen and acknowledged as the person, and then he, he shared a hug with me. And like, that was life-changing. The fact that, you know, it was interesting because a lot of people were walking past me, but he was able to pick up on my energy, I think, because he faced a lot of hardships in his life. And so he took it as an opportunity to, to show up for me and to help me and so grateful for him because after that, honestly, that gave me like the next six weeks, I just felt so inspired and motivated because of the interaction with Gary and it was life-changing. Yeah. And he, and he's in that short moment. I mean, I don't know how long the conversations are and then what you kind of edit them down to, but it's a, a relatively still a short moment for the viewer. You get the sense of Gary as like, incredible optimism and stoicism because he also he explains that he's got a daughter in nebraska which my states united states geography is not very good but that's very far away right yeah um yeah and he says something really sad like you know my, my greatest fear is kind of waking up as you say um waking up waking up dead or you know not waking up waking up dead and it seems to be this connected thing you know he's obviously wishes he could be with his family with his daughter who knows what his backstory is there and he's not he's not sitting in that kind of pain He's able yep. to use that to connect with you, which I think is just amazing. But I also wondered if, did any of those interactions feel difficult for you? Because you're aware that actually maybe someone's identified a kinship in the situation you're in, but you know that you do ultimately have a warm bed to go back to and a you know, friend community and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. There was definitely, um, I'd say some guilt and shame with what I was doing. And it's interesting. I I was on the road for seven months and I didn't ever get accustomed to holding my sign out there because I felt like, like you just mentioned, it was a choice by me. 
and I and I and I could have stopped at any time, you know. And at the very beginning of the movie, I acknowledged, and I think it's super important. Like I had resources where I could have just gone back home, right? And most people can't just do that. I was super privileged to be able to do this, and it was sad. Like someone like Gary, because that's his reality, and he was talking to me about, you know, it's dangerous on the streets. He's like, someone could come and stab you in the middle of the night. You know, I had a couple couple situations during my journey where like people came to my tent at like 3 a.m. and I didn't know what was happening. And it was, it was traumatic. Right. And I, and I can't imagine just living with that stress every day. Like, you don't, cause you don't, when you're, when you're sleeping in the streets like that, you, you're not totally asleep the whole night. And I can't even imagine how exhausted you must feel throughout your life. And someone like Gary, I, I feel so grateful to meet him. He also had a brain tumor. Wow. So I don't even know, you know, I wasn't able to keep in contact with him, unfortunately. And I don't even know if he's still around anymore. And yeah, but sometimes I think that I found that with some of these people who are going through a lot of adversity, it seems like they really wanted to help because it just gave them, it, you know, it kind of broke them out of their, their sadness, at least for a moment, mm. you know? And it seems like Gary looked, you know, he was struggling because of, you know, the pain of not being around his daughter and living on the streets. And I think that you looked at it as an opportunity to do something good for someone because I think that when, when you give something to someone or when you show up for somebody, you receive a lot as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you you said there, you know, you, you didn't or you weren't able to keep in contact with Gary? Did you keep in contact? Are you in contact with anyone else? Did you swapping cell phone number? Well, yeah, cell phone. Like I'm talking to you like I'm in America. We call them mobile telephone <laughs> numbers. Um, do you, yeah, swapping numbers and stuff. Have any correspondence still? Yeah, I keep in contact with almost every single person, um, really? which wow. is so special. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad to be able to do that because they were all they changed my life. The people that I came across there and and showed up for me, and so it's it's really special to because in some ways or not some ways, I think this movie is a collaboration with myself and all the people I met. I mean, they helped create this story because they decided to show up and and to help me. So it's so special to to include them in the movie, you know. Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of The Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. I mean, how much of your day is spent... You've done, you've done the riding part of it. You've, you've done the finding, and there's other means as well that you use to you know, find sustenance and stuff but you're fed and watered and you're having conversations with people. But then do you have to kind of break off into a, by the way, I have been filming you and please can you sign some kind of waiver? Because I know that like there's all kinds of mad litigation that goes on in the States. And does that then feel a bit like breaking the fourth wall? or And did you get any people being like, what? Hang on, I, I'm not cool about this. You've been filming me, mate. Yeah, so um, 
pretty much, I'd say 99% of people were totally cool with it. There was a couple of people who shared like, just like, Hey, this is a, this was a private story I shared with you. So I'd prefer not, not to be in the movie, which I totally understand. Yeah. And, um, you know, because, because it was showing, you know, the movie shows acts of kindness and compassion and empathy. Everybody was super cool with the idea that it was filmed because I mean, it's showing them in a positive light. So and, you know, for most of these people, we talked for 10, 15 minutes before I even mentioned that it was being filmed, et cetera. And then they would sign a waiver, um, et cetera. And then, yeah, that's the way we did it. Yeah, yeah. And were there, or I'm sure there must have been, so talk me through the moments where people weren't so kindly, where you did feel scared, ultimately, or maybe even in danger. Yeah, yeah. So, like, in the beginning of the trip, there was still people, like, when I was standing with my sign, you know, every once in a while people would yell stuff at me. And, um, in the beginning it didn't bother me. That was fine because I was feeling mentally and physically strong. But as time went on, especially after being on the road for seven months. And, um, as I mentioned, all the stresses that I was dealing with and, and also my appearance was changing. I was growing like a long beard and, and not just that, but I was putting out a way different energy for sure. Like in the beginning I was welcoming people because of my like positive energy. And by the end I was pushing people away because of the, some of the struggles and, and the stresses that I was experiencing. And, um, that definitely started to wear on me. I mean, the idea that people are yelling at you like every day, like for seven months, it doesn't, eventually it starts to add up and just doesn't feel good. You know, especially when you're just trying to get enough food or, or money or, you know, getting a place, trying to find a safe place to sleep, et cetera. And so that definitely, yeah. And it makes me think about, I mean, I'm fortunate I could have just shaved my beard and then I would have been treated differently, but there's a lot of people where you can't just change your skin color, Yeah, you know? So so was that just on that one point? Was that something you specifically thought this could be a, a turning point in the in the documentary? I'm not going to shave my beard. I want to see, you know, continue with this with these feelings and the way that I'm being perceived because you know otherwise it's somehow you're kind of manipulating reality. Exactly. Yeah, it's similar to what I was saying about the uh, the grocery store. It felt like cheating in some ways, like standing in front of Trader Joe's. If I would have shaved, it would have felt like cheating. And, and also this whole experience, I mean, I really wanted to to dive into just the the human connection aspect. And so I planned beforehand. It's like I wanted to grow a beard because I had a feeling it was going to change the way that um, that people you know interacted with me and treated me, and it, and it totally did. Yeah. I think from just from like me with my kind of my cycling hat on, my helmet, if you will, um, watching you, I've done various rides, lots of, you know, lots of listeners will have done various rides of like considerable length, but nothing, nowhere close to, you know, the 7,000 miles, which is 11,000-ish kilometers for our European listeners. Um, There's probably one one person in France. Um, (laughs) That's a long ass way, but there's one bit which I could really relate to, but not in magnitude, but just in kind of uh, futility, was your riding uh, Route 50, right, which I looked up afterwards, which was called, and I've got the facts right in my fingertips, it was like in Life magazine in 1986 called this The Loneliest Road in America, which is a brilliant title. And there you are finding yourself on it on a push bike, laden. So I don't know what your average speed is. It is very low. And that road is like, 300 miles long or something yeah i think it's like 350 the the route that i took because i veered off of it but yeah and it's largely desert right yeah just desert there's like three or four towns and uh there was um 18 mountain passes to cross wow and just you're just surrounded by these giant basins yeah and uh yeah in some ways it was intimidating at times because you look around you think there is nobody around (laughs) you know yeah 
And yeah. Uh, yeah. especially it didn't help the fact that as, you know, I'd be riding through different basins and I'd look to the side of the road and there's like a dead, like a dead cow. Yeah. You know, there was one stretch where there was a bunch of dead cows. I don't know if they got lost or something and they just like died of thirst, but it was, <laughs> that definitely didn't help my, mind, yeah, my yeah. mindset, you know? I think there's a, a bit where you're riding past um, what looks like a kind of rusting shell of like a Model T Ford or something. And you're like, yeah, bloody hell. Okay, that's how few people come through here. <laughs> there's a car from like the 19... 19- 20s or something but yeah just look that looked like a very difficult like ta- mentally taxing situation but also i was thinking like you're a guy who as you just said you're, you're traveling without means you're relying on the kindness of strangers did you have to sort of really build up a like your stocks like your larder your glucose reserves your sleep because you know there's four towns on this road the chances of seeing anyone kind or not are just minimum did you have like a couple of like a week or something to like just prepare to be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. That was actually the first, when I was choosing my route before I even started the bike trip, I, I wanted to go across that because I saw it like on a YouTube video and I thought, oh my gosh, I would love, because again, I wanted to really dive into this. And the idea of, well, if I'm going to do this documentary, like I should go to some really like unique places to really feel like I'm out there, right? And so, but there was definitely an intensity every morning uh, when I would wake up out there, it's like, okay, like make sure you're stocked up and you know, you have all your water and food, et cetera, because it's not a joke out here in the desert. And I, and I, and I kept reminding myself to say like, respect the desert, respect the desert, because it's, uh, if you slip there, I mean, you're in trouble. There's not a lot of people out there and it's hot. Yeah. And uh, the thing that the most challenging thing, even, even more so than the, than the heat was just, there was no shade, there's no trees. And so like, I mean, one day there was, you know, 83 miles and, um, three mountain passes and and no services, no shade. And, and that was concerning because I just thought, I'm not sure how my body's going to react to being in this hot sun yeah. nonstop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and, and then how does a day work like that? Because presumably at some point you have to pitch up and you're still in the desert. And then it goes from being fiendishly hot to fiendishly cold. And you're yeah. just mentally and physically depleted. Like, were there some like really quite long nights, I imagine? Yeah, definitely. The first night was interesting because um, these the, there were these coyotes that were close to my tent and they were howling all night, <laughs> you know, and I couldn't get it. It's disconcerting. <laughs> it was, yeah. And at first I was like, oh, this is so cool. You know, I'm looking at the stars. I'm in the desert, the coyotes. And then after a couple hours, it's like, okay, coyotes, please. I need to get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was um, for a cyclist assignment uh, over riding in Utah, and we did. We had to drive between Salt Lake City and, and Moab, and so you end up in the desert, going past uh, all the hoodoos, the kind of goblin park, amazing red rock formations. And yeah. there was this guy, and he looked. I, I was just, just totally reminded of you because you ride through Utah in part of the documentary, and he looked very similar. High vis, laden touring bike, and we were in this like hulking car, which in America. It was like a normal sized car in the UK. It would have been, it would have genuinely been commissioned for the army. And we're just like gunning it past him. And I was thinking, like, this poor guy, because like you say, no shade, no water. And we went and saw Goblin Park and came back, and he probably covered like, I don't know, 12 miles or something like that. And uh-huh. you just think, dude, you've got a long way to go. And the maddest thing is, he didn't have his shirt on. And I'm like, how do you not get burnt? Because if you're getting burnt on a long bike ride, that's really bad. And I noticed there's lots of points in the documentary. You're not wearing a shirt. And I'm looking at you now and you look like, you know, it's not like you're a massively tanned guy or something. You haven't got like loads of melatonin to soak up the sun. Yeah. You know, what's funny is um, 
I do. When I'm on the bike, there's something I like tap into a different spirit, if that makes sense. And like shirt just, it just doesn't make sense because you're like, you know, you're, you're camping outside, you're super sweaty and like, um, you're jumping in rivers, et cetera. And you're working super hard. And the idea of wearing a shirt just, just does, doesn't go in line. Like I kind of like to be this, like, or try to tap into like more of like a primal sense of me and just so it. So, you know, the shirt is just not something I do. <laughs> <laughs> and what other kind of stripped back sort of elements are there? Or more to the point, when you got home, what was the first thing that made you go, oh, and then what was the first thing that kind of made you go, I kind of miss life on the road, you know? Yeah. Um, I'd say having a refrigerator right. and being able to stock yeah. that refrigerator with food was unbelievable. Yeah. Just to be able to like open the refrigerator and then just like, I can just grab some food right now. That was, that was amazing. You know, it's interesting. What made me miss the road and I, I still experience this is, we, I call it stealth camping. When, when you're, um, you're camping in like odd places you know, like I was finding a lot of like baseball fields, et cetera. But for seven months, every night I'd be looking around, I'd be riding around town and thinking like, okay, where can I, where can I sleep? Yeah. Right. And there was something, there was some really unique places I slept and it was really exciting at times. Um, obviously sometimes we're dangerous, but there was, um, I got so accustomed to that. And the interesting thing is still to this day, I'll be walking around town and I'll say, I could sleep back there. <laughs> That'd be a great place to sleep. And that's, that's never left. It's still there. Are you back in your apartment like, looking for like, oh, maybe I'll just sleep under the sofa tonight. That looks like an interesting exactly, spot. Exactly. Well, you know, what's interesting is I, uh, when I moved into a new spot a couple of weeks when I got back home, I, I slept in the closet for like four months. <laughs> well, just because not, not, or because you had loads of stuff all over the flat. It's interesting. No, it's just, yeah, I just, I preferred that confined space. And I, I think that that for sure has to do with the fact that I had just gotten back from my bike trip. Yeah, yeah. Did you um, meet again? Like by the sounds of it, you've 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 not just cycled in the states; you cycled lots of different countries. As far as I've ever found it on a bike, like even if I just pass someone, most of the time on any bike, if I wave, they'll wave back. If it's a road bike, which is mostly what I'm doing, they will always wave. It's in fact, it's like really quite rude not to acknowledge someone else going the other way on a road bike when you're both doing the same thing. And you end up falling in step a lot of the time as well. You can find yourself riding up to somebody or someone riding up to you. Then suddenly you're just having a chat and you've got a kind of ride companion. Did that happen or did you feel like that's sort of not in the spirit of it? Because I would have thought that maybe you could end up with someone doing a similar thing, being like, hey, Daniel, let's do this together. And then what's your answer to that? Like, cool, you want to sleep in a dumpster and (laughs) and wait (laughs) outside the corner shop with me then? Yeah. So that's one thing I, I, uh, I wasn't sure how I was going to approach that. And, uh, there were several times once I hit the road that I met people who were on bike tours and they invited me to ride with them for a couple of days and I actually declined. Yeah. And it was, um, it was a hard decision, but I felt like it just didn't feel, I felt it was going to take me out of the experience and I was going to miss opportunities to connect with other people. And so, um, and there was also this anonymity that I wanted. I didn't want people to know what I was doing at the time. So I passed on those opportunities to, um, to ride with people. And, uh, yeah, it was the right decision, but it was tough because when you're on a bike tour, I mean, it's so great. If you can, if you can ride with somebody for a day or two, it's really special, but it was, yeah, I felt like the right decision. Did they take it well or were they a bit offended? They were a bit like, hang on. Totally. Yeah. No. And I didn't even mention the documentary to them. I was just like, oh, you know, I'm just out here. I'm just trying to really just get, get inside my mind and just like use this bike trip as an opportunity to reflect on some things. And, and they were understanding, they were disappointed, but yeah. So moving 
from West Coast across the country towards, so you kind of basically finish, I say finish in inverted commas in New York, and then you kind of, you get called back to the road, I think in your words. What's the change like in terms of, I don't know, the kind of socio-economic situation of people, the the levels of kindness of people? Do you find, yeah, how, how did that vary from from state to state? Where was most hospitable and where were the places where you're like, I'll be glad to see the back of you lot. Yeah. So when I got closer to New York City, everything in the country got way more confined and just dense. There was a lot more people there. And um, it wasn't the most cycling friendly place there as far as the infrastructure, the roads. But also, um, I mean, I think that some of these larger cities, maybe they're more accustomed to seeing people who are like on the streets because there was definitely less, I'd say, empathy towards it. And when I would, when I would be in a you know, in more rural places like Kansas, I mean, there were some really genuinely kind people there in Kansas. And I think those smaller communities, because they have to rely on each other more, I think they're, they're just more accustomed to helping out. Right. And that, that's something that I, I for sure noticed in, in the, in the rural places of the country compared to like bigger cities. And were people generally kind of bike friendly? Cause I remember cycling in, um, somewhere in Tennessee and the guys we were cycling with, which were from, uh, Linsky bikes, right. So they're they're locals and they know know you know know the place like the back of their hand. We're cycling on the group and he's just like pointing out these road signs like what do you think those dents are? And it's like they're just you know people shooting guns out of their windows just for fun to hit road signs. Like you genuinely want to be careful. People will they won't go for you, go for you, but they'll they'll you know scare you deliberately because you're a cyclist. And moments later, someone drove past. She didn't shoot us. But she wound down, she literally wound down a window and just went, get off the road, you're not welcome here. And we're like, what? We're literally like, we're not in your way. You've come over to tell us yeah. to get off the road. And it was a really odd thing to happen, which to them was, they were like, yeah, it happens all the time. Did you, did you find much of that? Yep. Yeah, I found that um, on certain areas. So there was, um, when I was biking down the Oregon coast, um, which is a popular cycling route, for whatever reason, there was a lot of people who were would yell things and, you know, blow exhaust in my face, et cetera. And I don't know if they were just tired of seeing cyclists or something, but I don't understand cycling. If anything, I don't know. I think people, if you're cycling, it's good for the environment and just, you know, you're connecting with your surroundings. And I think it's, it's odd to me that people have problems with cyclists. And I think obviously there's something deep down inside of them that they're unhappy about and they're kind of throwing out onto you. But there was, I mean, you know, I, I rode through some areas of the country where definitely was, different and not just from harassment. I mean, I was riding through a, a rural area in Idaho and this guy, um, at this point I had my long beard, et cetera. And this guy pulls over and he says, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm just going to the next town. He says, where are you from? I said, from California. He said, you shouldn't admit that to people around here. <laughs> and I, I didn't really understand like if he was joking or not. And then he says, you know, we're all carrying guns around here, right? And then he just, he just like stares at me and just slowly drives off. And I mean, again, like I'm a person on a bike. I, I think I'm like the least threatening person around, but I don't know what, what that was about. But, uh, and it definitely like, it affected me for sure. Like I didn't, I definitely felt unsafe out there, especially it was out in the mountains and there's no one around, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> that, that, yeah. That sort of stuff must be incredibly scary. And then also that, where do you unload that? Did you go to like 
any bars and sort of strike a conversation with a stranger and have that kind of day debrief that we all like to have with our mates? Or do you just like cycle around holding all this inside and having to... You know, that's a really great question, James. Um, you know, that stuck with me for a couple of days for sure. It totally affected me. It totally... And, and, and because I was, at, you know, more of like an isolated life, I didn't really talk to anybody for a couple of days. And so it was just sitting within me. So that definitely, definitely affected me. Did you feel your, because the other thing I guess as well is to frame this in, you did it in 2018 and then you finished seven months later in the beginning of 2019, which presumably then coincided horribly perfectly with COVID. So you kind of went from an isolated life on the road to an isolated life inside an apartment. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I'd say, I, I, but it, in different ways though, like when I was moving on the bike though, that felt like therapy in some ways though. You're constantly where like with, with the idea of being COVID and just being stuck inside. And the interesting thing with COVID is I filmed, I, I finished my movie two weeks before COVID. And then obviously, you know, they shut down everything. And then I just, I just sat on the movie for a year and a half. Nothing happened with the movie. And I thought, oh my gosh, like this whole experience is, I'm not going to be able to share this with anybody. And then after a year and a half, like late 2021, I started sharing the movie in film festivals and et cetera. And it was maybe it was a blessing in disguise because I finished the movie and uh, I felt like I t- didn't totally understand my experience and be able to really like reflect on it. And then having a, like a year off after making the film, I, I was able to really understand the experience and I actually remade the movie. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. I, I mean, it, I mean I was, and I say this very sarcastically, but I bet you must have been glad that because somewhere during COVID, it felt like maybe everyone started might be quite nice to each other again, and maybe the world might be a bit different. And then, luckily, it all went to shit again, which sort of <laughs> exactly, sort yeah. of still gives some kind of like ground and <laughs> context for for basically the question that you set out to try and get an answer to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The most ridiculous part of that was just like people like hoarding toilet paper. I'll never forget that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, but yeah, um, let's not go down the COVID route. <laughs> it's been done to death. Yeah, right? yeah. But yeah, crazy times. But um, did you, you know, are you someone that finds your own company quite easy or are you someone that maybe, you just mentioned there you find, you know, cycling um, as a bit of a therapy. And I've spoken to various ultra distance riders and they've, some of whom have been very open and said, actually, I came to cycling and still visit, you know, still use cycling as a means of a way out of a place where I used to be in life. There's a guy who um, did a record recently where he cycled the most number of kilometers in a week, I think, and he'd done and 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 he was he used to work in film, um, and just felt really burnt out and just had you know mental health struggles and he's, you know refound cycling something he did as a child, refound it again and just isn't an athlete athlete but became very very good at it just because he just loved doing it but does it more for his brain than his body? Would that are you are you coming at cycling from that that kind of direction at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I used to ride my bike as a kid. Right. And then when I was like 20, so my mother, she really struggled with, um, addiction problems. Right. And so I would just jump on my bike and get out of the house. Right. And, and I didn't realize it at the time, but it was therapeutic. Mm. Right. And it, it gave me a chance to just get out of that mindset. And I think that there's so much that goes into it. I mean, you're getting blood flow and circulation to your brain, right? And then just you're super stimulated by your surroundings, right? And so you're smelling the places that you're going through. You're looking around. You're seeing different people, or you, you could be listening to music. And for me, it's it's way more, um, I'd say, for mental health reasons than physical. Yeah. And there's no doubt about it. I prefer I, I don't uh, I prefer not to ride with people. I'd say 
you know, 99% of the time I'm on my bike, I'm, I'm, I'm alone on my bike trips, et cetera. I just, I just prefer it that way. And where do you find your mind kind of going? I mean, I'm assuming, or I don't, maybe not, maybe you do listen to a few tunes or a podcast, but it, you know, regardless, I'm guessing there's there are many, many, many more hours spent just, you know, completely alone. Uh, or not being stimulated by anything other than the things that you're making stimulate you, what you're listening out for and stuff. Do you find, I don't know, do you find that tips you into a strange place when you come back into contact with people? Is it quite jarring to go from one state to the other? Oh, good question. Is it jarring? No, I think I'm ready to come back to people actually because of the break from it. I mean, I think that when I I interact with people, I, I put a lot into it, which could be exhausting. And so the bike gives me a chance to step away from all that. And and the cycling, I mean, I'm not sure about you, but like I get filled with so much inspiration when I, when I ride my bike, you know? And I mean, this film, when I came up with the idea, I was riding my bike, you know, it all made sense. And I, I think that, yeah, I'd say inspiration and, and, and also like gratitude, it, it makes me, it, it's almost like it gives me a chance to step out of my normal way of thinking and look at it from a different perspective that I can't get when I'm just sitting still. Yeah, absolutely. I find it, there's a similar kind of effect to having like that sweet spot maybe we've had like two pints two beers and suddenly you're you know you're really enthusiastic about stuff but in a in in a way that has clarity but suddenly you're like bouncing ideas off your mates and be like oh we should do this we should do that and there's this kind of like unlocking of possibilities which in another situation they're all kind of closed down because you've got the rest of the world going on and i just find that on the bike so much i can go out have whatever problem it is and halfway through the ride, I'm sort of aware I'm not really thinking about the problem. And by the end of it, and it sounds so trite, so basic of me, but like I know when I'm in a good place because I'll start thinking about the next bike that I might build from various bits that I have. Yeah. So it's almost like yeah. it's emblematic more of I'm thinking about a future, whereas often I'm either stuck in the present or kind of maybe ruining something about an immediate past. And that, yes, yeah, it's, it's a tremendous thing. But I also think... Lots of people experience that. The idea of going on a long ride to get more of it seems quite seductive. But the reality is like, there must be bits where you're just like, man, this is boring. I really need this to stop. Or like, this is so uncomfortable. Get me off the bike. Do you have many of those? Yeah. So there were there were definitely moments um, where things got stale, I'd say. Mm-hmm. But you, you know, because I was making a documentary, I was always kind of on the lookout for um, for different like, camera angles, et cetera. And I brought a drone with me. Right. And so the, I felt like that was one thing that would snap me out of it. If I was having a boring day, I'm like, Oh, this might be kind of a cool shot. So I'd set up my camera and I'd, I'd like fly my drone and have it follow me, et cetera. And just having that to like always be on the lookout for, for a cool shot kind of helped me snap out of the, the monotony. Was there a point where you felt like, did you feel like your drone was becoming like Wilson in Castaway and you're talking to it? like Exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah. <laughs> Oh man, Wilson! I wish they wouldn't have let go of Wilson. Still gets me every time I see it. Every time I see that movie, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's not. I mean, Tom Hanks, greatest actor of mine and everyone else's generation, I'm sure. If you're listening, Tom, um, we salute you. Great turn, but yeah, <laughs> best supporting actor. That um, I think it's a volleyball, isn't it? Wilson's a volleyball stranger. Yeah, volleyball. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, Daniel, totally amazing to chat, and I do absolutely encourage everybody to seek out the film. As I say, it's available on various streaming platforms or just Google. We're all in this together and you will find it. You'll find Daniel. It's been fascinating to chat and I'm inspired to go and ride my bike. 
possibly not as far as you. But I do like the idea of having that that stripped back thing in a way of, you know, talking to people that only happens, I guess, if if you if you go away needing other people. Yeah, absolutely. That's well said. And um, just kind of in line with the podcast, you know, when you're on a bike tour, everybody sees all your gear, et cetera, and it attracts curiosity. So I think riding your bike is the best way to really connect with other people is um, because it's so non-threatening and people are curious, you know? So I think it's great to be on the bike. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know, yeah, I know what you mean. And that's the brilliant thing about, I think, like touring in places like the Alps, you just see, and it's specifically often like, older it's older men and they've got these mad bikes which they've obviously added to over time you know they've got like mirrors on the handlebars and a little trailer out the back and the flag so they don't get run over by lorries and all this stuff you just think like each one of those things you added over countless thousands of kilometers and this bike tells a story and yeah i'm always is i think there is something fascinating it's like it's the you know it's the new version of the guy that rides into town on a horse kind of thing you're like Absolutely. Like, Where have you come from? Where are you going yep, dressed like exactly. that? Exactly. Yep, definitely. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, Daniel, you should probably get riding again. I'm sure you've got some uh, more adventures to get to, but thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, James. Thank you very much, Daniel Troyer. That was, I mean, a pretty incredible thing to do. Thank God he survived to make the film. Yeah, I mean, that would have been a terrible outcome for both the film and also for our podcast it could have been a weekend at bernie's moment where we had it would have been arguably more terrible for daniel himself it would have been and those that know and love him but i don't know why we suddenly switched over into um talking about daniel in a sort of posthumous sense because he's still very much alive and that's still an incredible tale and thank goodness thank goodness and something that i've always thought about doing not something like that precisely because it's very far and i don't live in america but a long solo bicycle ride of that ilk and I'm not really sure how I feel about it because I know it I feel like it would be good but I also know myself and I wonder if after maybe like two days I would just be like literally shoot me in the head I can't do this this is so boring yeah it's one of those things that I feel especially now with a lot of uh, trendy ultra endurance kind of bikepacking stuff it's quite romanticized yeah that'd be amazing but personally I think I would really struggle yeah, I think if you could absolutely guarantee, and this is totally not in the spirit of it, that you went to a nice hotel like, once a night, it would be lovely. Once a night? Yeah. Like, I can I can do, I mean, yeah, credit card touring, I can do it that way. It's just, and maybe like, occasionally there'd be a beautiful place to do some wild camping and that would be a bit of fun. But yeah. the idea that, you know, sleep is such a premium. Sleep is such a premium in the modern age anyway. That you, and you really need it to do stuff like cycling. But then you also have to do it like Daniel did in places like the, not what they called, in the, not the bleachers, but basically the, 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 the sort of dugout American football stadiums, the small ones in town, or just like in bus shelters or occasionally like in a dumpster. I'm less of a fan of that. I like the idea of being able to tell those stories afterwards though. Yeah, the stories are obviously the best part. Also, I I can't function without food and water. No, I think I would I would get to my end long before Daniel has. Looking at you, James, and having read your mag- wonderful magazine features, I bet you have come very close to a top bonk in your time on a bicycle. A top bonk. You said looking at me as if I do. I look sort of emaciated currently. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just I'm just thinking back to your your feature that I think it was last year when yeah, you did the uh, Italian what's it called Chase the Sun Chase the and Sun you ended up in a lake. 
Oh yeah, no, that was that was that was pretty. That was more like, and Daniel does that again in the film. Um, I shouldn't drop all these spoilers, but there's a bit where he basically his nose explodes because he's so dehydrated, which is a weird thing. But I saw that, that happen um, IRL on a ride in South Africa once, where it was like nearly forty degrees, and this guy's like jet. Like I didn't see, saw him at the beginning of the ride, saw him at the end of the ride, and he had this white jersey, and it was just blood red. And his nose had just kind of gone pop from the heat exhaustion. So that was a heat exhaustion situation with Chase the Sun. I just couldn't get like enough kind of water in me to like, I don't know, just to like hydrate me basically and just got very, very hot. So that wasn't very fun. But no, I think like my earliest, and I learned from this, and I don't really think I've ever done it since, bonking incident was riding from London I've probably said this on this podcast before, so I do apologise if I'm just re- retreading old ground. But riding from London to Brighton as a very green young cyclist and just not really considering that I needed to eat any much more than the dinner from the night before, maybe like a bar en route. And uh, I got to Ditchling Beacon, which is really quite close to Brighton, but I was so gone. It was insane. And I just had to take my shoes off because I was in cleats, hold them and push my bike up. And I just felt like, I just felt so crap, like mentally so crap, so kind of like down on myself that I had to, this was the ignominy of pushing this bike up this climb, which, you know, if you've ridden up it, it's a pretty steep climb, but it's the sort of thing where I'm like, I'm from Brighton and I literally ride this climb, you know, a couple of times a week and this, I can do this. And it was a very humbling, very useful experience. And then I got home and I was just like, yes, I know that there is this massive plate of pasta in the fridge because I left it from last night deliberately and my housemate had eaten it. I was so pissed off. It was <laughs> unbelievable. I was so angry. Anyway, so that that was a lesson. The lesson in making sure that you eat a decent amount first, but also you got to eat on the bike, didn't you? And that's the best thing about cycling is getting to eat all the time. Which we spoke about last time. Soaring great on the bike. Soaring great on the bike. Apparently, a pork pie is excellent endurance fuel. Really? Yeah, I mean... I'll take that next time. Yeah, I mean, let's not go into what might be in a pork pie, especially the kind of two-for-a-pound numbers, but... Does it have to be full-size pork pie, or are we talking the minis? I think minis, because it's difficult to get a full-size pork pie in your pocket, whereas a mini... Yeah, I guess you could slice it up, though. You could slice it up, but... um, I don't know. What's, is there a special name for the type of pork pie that has the egg in the middle? I'm not sure, actually. My dad used to work in a pork pie factory, so maybe I should know this. Really? That's really interesting. Well, do you grow up in Melton and or Mowbray? Uh, near, not in Melton Mowbray, but I'm from not too far away. And what age was he when he did this? Uh, he, was a, he was a youth, I think. I believe he was sort of maybe late teens, early 20s. Good money in pies? I'm not sure. The money was, was very good. It was kind of like a just a... You know, job, not a, like a job, job, you know. Could you find out some details and report back next time? But I'd like to know, does the gelatin get shipped in and injected between the crust and the meat, or does it come out of the meat when cooking? Well, get your questions in now. I'll make some notes and I'll come back to you. Okay, so there's that. Do they make the pastry in the same factory as the meat? Is it all done under one roof? Right, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, or are elements of it made in China, like in the bicycle industry, and they come over here for assembly? <laughs> Yeah, maybe actually. And finally, what is the correct accoutrement for the pork pie or accoutrement for our continental listeners? Would it be the English mustard or moutard or would it be pickle lily? 
That is a good question. Although surely the purists would say, just get it down your gob. Get it down your gob. On that note, Will Strickson, I was going to say get it down your gob, but that has no doesn't really make any sense <laughs> and sounds a bit rude. So see you later, <laughs> mate. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for joining us on the Psychist Magazine podcast. We will be back in a fortnight's time with another cracking guest. Ta-ta. Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how Join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then Join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair Join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of the Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. Don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine Podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first, and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now, you can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is a very, very light gilet, which apparently, I know I've got the jacket version, and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version. So it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40K in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now.